Turn with me, if you will, to the Psalms, chapter 11, the division of the Psalms. It's very short. It's only seven verses, but it is packed with all kinds of information about our relationship to God. There are some things in the spiritual realm that are foundational, that cannot be negotiated away, that cannot be eroded or cannot... Uh, dissolve. We need those foundations and we need those principles of righteousness and goodness that God has placed in the church. Well, the number one foundation is Jesus himself. Paul said he could lay no other foundation than that one that is laid. In fact, in the New Testament, the Bible said the foundation which is Jesus Christ. And all of those great verses in the New Testament correlate with those verses in the Old Testament about a different system of righteousness, about a different plan of redemption, because in the fullness of time, God sent his son, made of a woman, made under the law, that he might redeem all of those who were under the law, that you might have life, Jesus said, and have it more abundantly. And because of that transition, from the Old Testament Levitical system to new life in Christ in the New Testament. It's quite a step and quite a uh, move of God to bring us into closer relationship with Him. David says in this Psalm chapter 11, to the chief musician, a Psalm of David. In other words, this is directly from the pen of the psalmist himself. In the Lord... Put I my trust. Boy, that starts off good, doesn't it? In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain. For lo, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privately shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed... What can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold and his eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous. But the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Boy, I sure wouldn't want to be in that place, would you? That God would hate somebody. Pastor, God is love. Yes, he is. But he made this statement right here, and it's anointed. It's written by the Holy Spirit that they that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Wow. In fact, the Bible said, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And Deuteronomy, the Bible gives us six things that the Lord hates. So God not only has the capacity to love, he also has the capacity to hate. Wow. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. The righteous Lord loveth 
loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. Psalm 11 begins with this, this inquiry in verse 3. If the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous or what can the righteous do? You see, the Old Testament concept of foundation refers to truth that forms the support structure of their whole society. In other words, religion for Jewish people is where they found identity. In fact, their covenant with God was the most important covenant that a person could have. In fact, God, they believed, was the maker of all things, the creator God, Yahweh, the everlasting God, that from everlasting to everlasting, the unlimited sovereign God of the universe. And the Bible tells us that he is the creator. I had a professor one time who said, the hardest verse in all the Bible to believe is the first one. Why is the first one hard to believe? Because the Bible said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before you can go any further than that, you got to stop right there and have faith to believe that God is the creator God. Right there, you've got to come to grips with the fact that God is the author of all goodness and all of life's blessings and pleasures. That God is the creator. And when he created man, he created him in his own image and his likeness created he him. He took something away from man because man needed something to be received. God took a rib out of Adam and gave him a helpmate. Yeah. So when God takes something from you, don't worry. He's got something to give back that is something you need. When God takes something out of your life, it's for your good and it's for your benefit because he intends to do something with what he's taken, multiply it, enlarge it, bless it, and return it back to you so that it can be the blessing that you want it to be. Make any sense? So then God has this Levitical system, this law, and it's called the Decalogue, or you would call it the Ten Commandments. It is the Torah. It is the law. Wouldn't it be something if the law of God was the law of the land? In Israel, it was exactly that. The law of God, the law of the Lord, was the law of the land. In other words, their whole society, their whole uh, living was all about serving God and doing His will and keeping the promises and keeping the, the, the holy days and doing all of those things. So that was very precious to them and they had confidence that as long as they could do those things, and as long as they could have that structure, then they would always be a people, would always have access to God, that God would always be on their side, that God would fight for them in battles, that God would provide food on the, in their crops, and that they could enjoy the oil and the, of the olive, and they could enjoy the blessing of the grapes, and they could enjoy all the many things that God, in covenant with them, they believed that that relationship with God was the answer to all of their needs and all of their inquiries. So then you've got to take that now, and we'll do a New Testament in a minute, but we've got to understand what David was talking about here. Because he's not talking about New Testament things. My Lord, it's hundreds of years yet until there is a New Testament. 
and he is talking about Israel and the relationship, about the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and about the, the Levitical system and about the, the high priest and how important it was to have a priesthood, how important it was to have access to God. Now, granted, it wasn't what God wanted because God wanted everybody to be able to approach him individually. But when they came to the mountain, you remember with Moses? And there was thundering and lightning on the mountain, and there was fire, and there was smoke. And the Bible said, and the people backed down the mountain because they were afraid. How many times has fear kept people from having a relationship with God? How many times has fear caused people to not take that last step and enter into his presence? Oh, yes, God is great. God is awesome. God is uh, most sovereign. He is above all. And the Bible tells us that we should fear the Lord. In fact, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. So this fear of the Lord is actually a holy reverence. It is an awe of God. When we have this awe, holy awe, reverential awe of God, then we are cautious at times to enter into his presence because the Bible said in his presence no sin can dwell. And no unclean thing shall walk upon his path. That means that God, who is a righteous God, loves righteousness. He really does. And he says that you've got to be righteous in order to have a relationship with him. And we've told you many times that righteousness simply means right standing with God. So God welcomes people who are in right standing with him. God, the Bible said, the eyes of the Lord are upon the upright. God looks after people who are upright. He looks after people who are in right standing with him. Does that make sense? So in the Old Testament, that meant that every day at the year of atonement and at the day of Purim, that you had to make a trip to the temple and you had to bring your lamb, your goat, your pigeon, or your dove and offer it as a sacrifice for the sins of the year. A whole year. But next year, you got to come back and bring another bullock or goat or pigeon or dove because it, there could never be a total resolution to the matter. You could never reach the place that sin was dealt with and finished and done once and for all. In fact, Hebrews tells us that every priest standeth daily offering sacrifices which can never take away sin. Wow. So then these people had a a system that was God-given that was an interim system. It wasn't intended to be forever because the Bible said it was established from the foundation of the world that Jesus Christ should die for the ungodly. So this temporary system that God gave them, access to the Father, forgiveness of sin, atonement, purity, personal purity, they obtained because they brought a sacrifice and God accepted the sacrifice. And for years and years, the blood of animals flowed for the sins of the people. Now, it was in that kind of a system that David is now looking and David is now involved. He is the king. The king. The king that was after God's own heart. But this writing of this psalm goes back to a time prior and if you read 2 Samuel, you'll find the story of how that David 
was the anointed one of God. But there was another who was anointed of God whose name was Saul. And Saul was the first king of Israel. Most people, when you ask, who was the first king of Israel? They resoundingly say, David. No, it wasn't David. It was Saul. And the Lord chose him and the Lord picked him out because he stood head and shoulders above all others in Israel. The Bible tells us that he was a, a, an eloquent man and he was a, a man that people admired, that people looked up to. He was mighty in battle. He was strong in his convictions about God and, and the things of the law. And the Bible said, and God chose him, and God selected him. And the people all said, surely the hand of the Lord is upon Saul. But there came a time when Saul did some very despicable things. There were some times when he became too familiar with sacred things. There came a time when he thought himself to be higher than the priesthood. Now let me tell you. God's order of things is God's order of things. And what he has established, that's not to be trifled with. And so Saul, one day when Samuel was not at the temple, he got impatient, as Don says. And he, the Bible said he just took over. And the Bible said he offered the sacrifice himself and started doing the priestly things. Now, when you start operating outside your anointing, you'll always incur the discipline of the Lord. He loves you enough to whip you back in line. He loves you enough that he strikes your spiritual legs when you do wrong things. And the Bible says that if any person claims to be a child of God but has never experienced that chastisement and that discipline from the Lord, then he is an illegitimate child and not a son. So one of the conditions of sonship and relationship with God is that you have at times experienced his discipline. Because whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he disciplines, he puts you back in the realm of your purpose and the plan of God for you. It was never the plan of God that Saul should be a priest. But in his arrogance, he assumed himself to be up above the priest. Why should I wait around here for a priest? I'm a king. I've got the authority to do anything I want to do. And the Bible said that he offered the evening sacrifice. And the Bible said, and God spoke to Samuel and said these words. How long wilt thou mourn over Saul? Don't you know that I have rejected him? Arise and go over to Jesse's house and anoint a king. Wow. So he grabbed his hen of oil, H-I-N. Now, that hen of oil contained about six quarts of oil, a gallon and a half. So when he went to anoint a king, he didn't take our little bottle of olive oil and dab. In fact, when he arrived at Jesse's, his other sons were all at the house and they started walking around and presenting themselves before Samuel. Around came Eliam. And 
the Lord said, this is not the one. Well, that's not biblical, Brother Jerry. The Lord always takes the firstborn. There's a covenant with the firstborn. The firstborn had to have been his choice. The Bible said, God hath not chosen him. Well, the next one is Abinadab. Well, here comes Abinadab, and he stands before Samuel. And Samuel says, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And God said, neither hath the Lord chosen this. Didn't even call him a person. This. Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Well, here comes Shammah. And again, Samuel said, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And God said, no, this is not the one. Went through all the sons, and God didn't say a one of them. And he turned to Jesse, and Samuel said, What's wrong here? God sent me here to anoint a son. Do you have any more sons? He said, Well, there's one. And said, He's out in the field tending the sheep. Little Jim right here, don't miss it. God didn't have a promotion for the people who were at the house waiting on promotion. God went to the field and chose the purpose whose hand was on the plow and whose staff was in his hand to shepherd the sheep. When God starts looking for somebody to go for him, he doesn't look to the couch potato. He goes and finds somebody that is busy doing the work of the Lord, the work that is assigned him. And the Bible said, and David was that person. Well, now you got to understand, David was not an intimidating person. He didn't have physical stature like Saul did, of being tall and big and head and shoulders above everybody. Actually, David was a little skinny guy. And at this time, he was about 17 years old. He was still freckle-faced and red-headed and scrawny and skinny. And instead of doing things normal Israeli boys do, he loved to sit around pluck his guitar and sing, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Oh, bless the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. He's always standing around picking his guitar and singing songs. And oh yes, he had one more activity that he really enjoyed. He loved target practice with his slingshot. He loved to gather stones down at the creek and put up targets and sling the sling. I'm sorry, I'm left-handed. I don't know which one he was. And he would swing that sling and he'd release that stone and it would go to its target. What are you doing, David? I'm getting ready because one of these days God's going to need a slingshot. I'm just preparing and getting ready. One of these days, God's going to need a slingshot. And when he does, I'll be ready. Has that one who was summoned to go and seek David and bring him to the house. The Bible said as he got near, he heard the songs and heard the singing and, and heard the stones that as they bounced off the targets. And he thought, my, what a weird person this is to be picking out for king. The one that's going to replace Saul, 
Surely not this 17-year-old skinny kid. He said, come on, son, and let's go to the house. There's some business going on up there, and they want to talk to you. And the Bible said, and David said, He hath taken me from among the sheep coat, and hath made me a king. He hath taken me from among the sheep coat, and hath made me a king. When he walked in to the presence of Samuel, Samuel took the oil in his hand, and the Lord said, Arise and anoint. This is he. Woo. Praise God. There was specificity to what he said. He said, This is the one. And the Bible said he dumped all gallon and a half of oil on David and it ran down his garments. Wow. That's how David got to be king. So Saul thought, but he's a good singer. And I like good, good contemporary music. Said, I'm going to get him to come over and sing at my house. I'm, I'm going to give him a room in the palace. And from now on, he's going to be a minstrel. And when I get upset and I get nervous and I get all wrought up, then I'll just get him to sing a few songs for me and I'll just quiet right down. Well, that seems innocent enough. And that's the way it started. But Saul soon understood that the hand of the Lord was upon David. Saul soon became jealous. And the next thing you know, things started deteriorating. And Saul began to look with disdain upon David. And the Bible said that Saul sought the life of David and actually wanted to kill him. His son, Jonathan, tipped David off and told him, said, there is an enemy you've got and he wants to kill you, and he wants to take you out of the picture. The Bible tells us that Saul started doing some very heinous things. He started murdering and killing people that posed a threat to him. In fact, at one instance, the Bible said that he killed or had executed 85, fourscore and five priests including the high priest of Emelech. He was killed. Now, you're not getting the gra grasp of that because you're not Jewish and you don't know what a tremendous explosion that was to kill 85 priests, including the high priest. That would be such sacrilege and that would be such terrible atrocity such a heinous crime it was as if you're wiping out the whole religious foundation that you're doing such harm and such danger to their system the levitical system how will we get to god you've killed all of our priests how in the world will we know the law of god the bible says the teachers of the law are the priesthood and they're the ones that get the truth to us and expose the lies and the inerrances. They're the ones who stand to empower the things of God. They speak the things of God. They go to God for men. And now you've killed every one of them. We don't have a religion anymore. You've killed our religion because you've killed our priests. And that's when David picked up his pen and started writing what I read for you just a few moments ago. 
I will trust in the Lord at all times. The Lord is my light, my salvation. He's the strength of my life. The Lord is my God. The Lord is my star. The Lord is my source. And I trust him. Even though you've killed every priest and every prophet in Israel, the Lord is the strength of my life. If no one ever arises to be priest in Israel again, I will serve him and I will believe him and I will walk uprightly before him because the righteous God loves righteousness. And I will not fail. I will not lose out. I will not perish. I refuse to go away. What will the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? Well, the result of all of that, all of that destruction and that erosion of foundations, I can see some similarity in our country today. I can see some foundations being destroyed in what we call the American way of life. I can see some things that are already happening, some cracks in the foundation that if not repaired soon will crumble. And I can see where this whole thing could come tumbling down. Did you ever think that you would see a mob rush the Senate building and sit in the speaker's chair and sit in the vice president's chair would breach the security at the Capitol? Did you ever think you would ever see anything like you've seen in the last few months and a year? Did you ever think that the whole population would be told stay at home and don't get out of your doors? Did you ever think that you would ever come to a time like we've experienced right here? If you'd be honest, you'd say these are unprecedented times. When we read scriptures and we try to understand how can one world government succeed like the book of Revelation teaches us that it will. How can we ever get to a point that one world dictator will take over and that all of our democracy and our system of governance will all come under the head of that one world dictator, that one ruler? How in the world, pastor, could this whole world as different as they are and as split and divisive as they are, ever come under the leadership of one person. In fact, the Bible said his popularity would be so great that the Jews would take him and put him in the temple and worship him as God. How in the world could we ever get to the place Pastor, that one man would be called God, especially by these Jews, especially by people that knew the law, that had all of these things in their history, and yet they will succumb to one world ruler? Yes. 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 And when you see things happen like we have seen in the previous year, when you observe the danger and you observe all the departure from things you had always thought would always be that way.
And suddenly it is no more. That what you have called sin for decades and centuries, the government has now declared that is no longer a sin and it's not against the law and we're going to recognize marriage between a man and a man and a woman between a woman. And if you don't go along, if you don't succumb, your 4013C is out the door. The church needs to prepare itself because there is coming a time when you're going to be tried and tested about the foundations. There's going to come a time when you're going to have to say yay or nay about these foundations. Because passing rules is becoming too easy for those who sit in legislative places. And the church is losing ground day after day after day. More and more, a war is coming, a spiritual war. And more and more, you can see it approaching. I know it's not popular to preach like this. I understand. I know the ground I'm on. But what I'm telling you is if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? If what we've always believed is done away with, where will we turn? If those we have always trusted can be trusted no more, what can the righteous do? If systems that have always performed well for us function no more and perform no more, what can the righteous do? Number one, the righteous can do what righteous people do, do right. Because doing right is always God's expectation of us. He expects us to do right on Sunday and do right on every other day of the week. He expects us to do right when we're in church. He expects us to do right when we're on the job. He expects us to do right in the, in the marketplace. He expects us to do right in the counseling chamber. He expects us to do right in the doctor's office. He expects us to do right in the banker's office. He expects us to do right, tell right, be right. That's why they call you righteous, because you do right. And when the church can no longer be identified by doing right, then we've lost our testimony. And when you lose your testimony, you lose your witness and you lose your influence. And when you lose your influence, you're just another institution. But I want to tell you the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is alive. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a truth-preaching, Bible-believing group of people that are sold out for God and sold out for the Word of God. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. They believe that God and His great love and mercy hath sent forth His Son that all who believe on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. They believe that the Word of God is true and it can be believed, that it can be accepted as God breathed and God anointed. They believe that what God's people are doing is ordained of God, that going into all the world and preaching the gospel is fulfilling the mandate of God. Those are some foundations, folks, that we cannot let be destroyed. 
The latter part of Psalm 11 tells us what happens when foundations are destroyed. It tells us, chapter 11, verse 5 through 7, it tells us that men will grow to love violence. Violence. You've never seen violence like what you see when a mob gets enraged. You've never seen civil strife and civil disobedience like it will abound when people who love violence have torn down the foundations. We who believe in law and order and we who believe in social justice and we who believe in equality, we who believe that we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. The people who believe that, as long as we believe the truth and live in the truth and do the truth, then God's hand is with us and God's power is upon us and God's eye is upon the righteous and His ear is cut to their cry. But the day that we depart from that is the day that God takes His hand off of us. And no longer can say, these are my people. God is looking for a people today who will be identified as people who do right. And when we lose the foundations, first thing you can expect is violence starts taking over. When we erode those foundations, a second result of destroyed foundations is in Psalm 12, chapter 2. And it says, every man utters lies to his neighbor. When truth is no longer cherished and valued, then every man starts speaking lies to his neighbor. In other words, everybody does what is right in his own eyes. That happened in Judges, you know, that after Joseph was dead, the Bible said, and then there arose another Pharaoh. There arose another king that knew not Joseph and did not know Joseph's God. Come on, somebody. And the Bible said the result was everybody just did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king. Brother, I shudder to think what America would be like. I shudder to uh, just hint at what Aniston might be like, at what Harvest might be like. If you do away with truth and erode the truth, the Bible said if you believe a lie, you would be damned. The Bible said all liars shall have their part of the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Isn't it ironic that when foundations are destroyed, that every man speaks lies with his neighbor? Wow. A third result of failing foundations is in Psalm 13 and 2. And that verse tells us that wickedness will be exalted over righteousness. Wow. We always thought that righteousness would prevail. We always believed that righteousness was the highest ambition. But the time will come when wickedness will reverse that. And wickedness will become the highest ambition. And righteousness will take second. What is that? What, what happens to cause that, Pastor? Foundations destroyed. What you always believed, you don't believe anymore. What you always cherished as truth and righteousness, you don't cherish that anymore. That wickedness shall be 
exalted over righteousness. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? In Romans 1, the heart, the mind of sinful man is revealed insofar as he not only goes along with unrighteousness, but he gives his hearty approval to those who do wickedness. To many, wickedness prevails over righteousness. Far more Americans, for example, give themselves to the internet than the Christ of the church. When that happens, the enemy has been exalted over righteousness when foundations are destroyed. There's one more, and it's in Psalm 14. Because in 12, 13, 14, he answers, what can the righteous do? Still further, in Psalm 14, 1, it completes the descent of a godless, foundationless, post-modernity church. And it reads this way. If you see it on your board, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. You see what foundations are destroyed it eventually leads to you an apostate. It really leads you down a road to where you dismiss the existence of God. It leads you down a road where science is more important to you than spiritual things. It eventually will lead you to a place where you trust more in science and technology than you do in the grace of God and the power of His Spirit. I feel a strange anointing today. I really didn't intend it to be like this, but for some reason the Holy Spirit has directed this service in a strange direction. I feel almost as an oracle of God speaking forth what God has to say to us today. I feel like it's a word of knowledge. I feel like it's a word of discernment. I feel like God himself is speaking to us today. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do. In 1 Corinthians 3, would you come please, Olivia, and help me land this plane. When the foundations are destroyed and the entire culture seems to have its feet planted firmly in midair, that means they stand for nothing. What can the righteous do? The righteous can fix their eyes upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he is today sat down at the right hand of God. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Trust Jesus. That is a foundation that can never be destroyed. The foundation which is Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3 and 11, if you'll put that up there for me. 1 Corinthians 3 and 11. For another foundation can no man lay than that that is laid. What is that foundation? Which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3 and 11. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You mean Jesus Christ is the head of all things? 
Do you mean that Jesus Christ is the culmination of all seeking for truth? Do you mean that Jesus Christ is the greatest personality of all of history? Are you telling us that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the Godhead bodily? Are you telling us that in Jesus all the manifestations of God are revealed? Are you telling us that in Jesus lasting peace can be found? Are you telling us that in Jesus there's forgiveness of sin? Are you telling us that in Jesus there is access to the Father? Are you telling us that in Jesus and trusting Jesus there's peace that passes understanding? Are you telling us that in Jesus there's a joy that's unspeakable that's full of glory? Are you telling us that in Jesus all things are possible to people who believe? The foundation is the Lord Jesus himself. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 19. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. Brother, when everything starts shaking, when everything that can be shaken is shaken, when everything that can come apart at the seams comes apart at the seams, when everything that you thought would fall apart and would, would be destroyed, when that happens, there's something that you can do now that when that time comes, it will have no effect on you. Are you kidding me, Pastor? Are you telling me tonight or today I can do something that will prepare me for that time? Well, just read it. It's right there. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation. Is your foundation a good foundation? I said, is your foundation a good foundation? Is your foundation built upon the prophets and the... Is your foundation built upon the Lordship of Jesus? Is your foundation built upon the promises of God? Is your foundation built upon the relationship of righteousness that you have with God? Then you've got a good foundation against that time to come. Oh! Praise God, Pastor, are you afraid of tribulation? No, I've got a foundation that has prepared me against that time to come. Pastor, are you telling me that I can make a move and I can start on a project of building a foundation with God that the tribulation and all the wrath and all the vials and the indignation be poured out, that that will have no effect on me, I can tell you exactly that. That is the truth of God's Word. Today is the day of salvation, and now is the appointed time. This is the open door dispensation. This is the grace, the church dispensation. Now is the time to get you a good foundation against what is to happen on this earth. In other words, it says, get ready. In other words, it says, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready. It tells you today to make the urgent thing, getting ready for that time to come. How am I going to be able to stand when that time comes? Because you've got a full foundation. You've got a foundation that fire can't burn and water can't flood. You've got a foundation, Jesus said, that is built upon the rock. 
and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if your foundation is secure in God and secure in Jesus, that no evil shall come nigh thy dwelling, and no weapon that the enemy shall fashion against you will prosper. If you've got a good foundation, you're prepared against that time to come, and you've laid hold upon eternal life. Blessed and holy as he that hath part in the first resurrection. For on such the second death hath no power. Hath no power. Hath no power. Oh, blessed be God. First thing you can do is believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. First thing, believe on the Lord Jesus against that day. Boy, that's good stuff and I'm enjoying preaching it today. 1 Corinthians 3 and 10. According to the grace of God, which is given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds upon the foundation. Be careful how you build on the rock. Be careful how you build on the foundation. That rock is Jesus. But don't you build a shabby building on that foundation. Don't you build a shack and a lean-to on that foundation. The Bible said be careful how you build on that foundation. Be careful how you live out the testimony. Be careful how you walk out the faith. Be careful how you identify and relate. Be careful how you build on that foundation because no man can lay another one. It's Jesus or nothing. It's heaven or hell. Ephesians 2 and 10. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. Therefore, leaving the principles of this doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of what? Repentance. The foundation of repentance. I want to tell you, the devil and his crowd would love to destroy that foundation of repentance. But it remains true today. Except you repent. Ye shall always likewise perish. Repentance is one of those foundations of knowing God. Repentance means you come to God and turn away from your sins and turn away from your habits and turn away from the old person that you used to be. That's a negative act. It means to turn away from. To repent means to turn around and go the other way. That's what repentance is. There are a lot of people that would love to have a relationship with God where they didn't have to repent and had to deal with their sin. That is a religion of convenience, a religion that costs you nothing. I want to tell you, you need to count the cost, Jesus said. Count the cost. Jesus said you need to look at this thing and you need to stand and you need to make an appraisal. Come on, somebody. And when you cast your lot with the Lord Jesus and cast your soul upon his saving grace and you repent of your sins, Jesus said, go but sin no more. 
Jesus said, don't make it a habit of sinning. First John says, I write these things unto you little children that you don't keep on sinning. You don't get in the habit of sinning. You've got to stop sinning. That foundation, Cindy, would come under attack in our society because there are many who believe that just doing good deeds will win you a relationship with God. There are some that believe that generosity and giving to charitable organizations will win you favor with God. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you there is only one thing that will win you favor with God. And that's the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, that washes the sin out of your life. And except we repent, we will perish. Wow, that's great stuff. Leaving those principles of Christ, let's go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance. That's one thing that happens. That's one of the foundations that perishes from dead works and a faith toward God. That's another foundation, faith. Faith toward God. That means believing God to be sufficient to do what you ask Him. That means that when you pray, you believe. That means you have faith to believe that God will do what He says He will do. You have faith to believe that what God says in His Word is true and faithful. It's faith to believe that you can call, call out to God and he hears your cry and he extends his hand. He said, a hand is not shortened that it cannot save. He can save. He can heal. He can deliver. He answers prayer. Faith towards God is another of those foundations. Here's another one. You got it? Number two of the doctrine of baptisms. There are many baptisms. There's a baptism of the flesh. There's a baptism of the spirit. There's a baptism into the family of God. There's a baptism of the Holy Ghost. But those baptisms are part of our foundation. It's our identifying with Christ. It's saying to the world, I am on God's side from now on. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. And he is my heavenly father. And that foundation is never going to go away for me. Hallelujah. Isn't that great? That foundation, one more and then we'll, well, two more and then we'll quit. Let me read them. The doctrine of baptism and the doctrine of laying on of hands. Are you reading this with me? It's in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. The doctrine of baptisms and the laying on of hands. A lot of folks don't like that laying on of hands, do they? But the Bible said, is there any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. Laying hands upon him in the name of the Lord. Many people would like to take that out of our DNA. One more, and the resurrection of the dead. Brother, if there be no resurrection, we're yet in our sins. If there be no resurrection, then Jesus died in vain. If there be no resurrection, then they that have fallen asleep in Jesus are perished. If there be no resurrection, we might as well close these doors and lock these doors and turn out these lights and never come in this room again. But I'm proud to announce to you today that he is alive. 
he is alive and he is in the presence of the Father. And probably more than anything else, the devil would like to destroy that foundation. But the fact that he lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, he lives. And that foundation is not for sale. That foundation is not negotiable. It goes in the building, praise God. And then the last one, the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. You've got to believe that if God's going to reward the righteous, he's going to punish the wicked. You've got to believe if the, what the Bible says about righteousness and salvation, it also says about people that know not God. You see, that's one of the fundamentals is that we believe in eternal right eternal life for the righteous and eternal punishment for the wicked. No liberation nor annihilation. Sister Wooten used to, in this building, she'd sit right there. She always sat on the second seat in the front, always. She came early just to get her, get her seat. She had Kat get her there way before church time. And there were even some times that she'd tell people, you're sitting in my seat. She used to say this, Mike, she would say, Brother Jerry, if we miss that rapture, we're ruined. What she's saying is, if you miss Jesus, then the foundations are all broken up. If you miss his invitation, if you miss his call, if you miss his gesture of love, then you're ruined. I don't want anybody in this room to be ruined. I don't want anybody that's watching through that website to be ruined. The fact that I'm standing here today talking to you and talking to you is an effort on God's part to keep the foundation from being destroyed. It's up to us, folks. It's in our hands. God says, I'll give you the anointing. I'll give you the power. And I'll give you my presence. I'll go with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll go with you all the way. But do right and seek after righteousness. For I, the righteous Lord, love righteousness. Stand with me, please. Well, you heard some pretty solemn stuff this morning. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can the righteous do? I believe now you know where to go and I believe you know what to do. What can the righteous do? Praise God. I appreciate every one of you being here. Father, I thank you for this gathering and this assemblage of people today. And I thank you for the grace of God that brings salvation that appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. I thank you that you're a righteous God and there is no fault in you and there is no sin, nothing in your character, nothing in your person. You're the sinless Son of God and we love you and we're the sheep of your pastor. You are our shepherd. You cause us to lay down in green pastures. You lead us beside still waters. 
You prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. You anoint our head with oil. And as long as you're our shepherd, I shall not want. I thank you, God, for being the foundation, for being the rock that will never move and never be destroyed. And I ask you, Lord, that everyone who walks out these doors today will realize the solemnity of what was said in this pulpit today and take it to heart and let it become a stern warning to them. We've got to be diligent about doing God's commandment. We've got to be his people. Touch people today, O oh Lord, with strength and energy to go out this door and to make their life count for God and make a difference for somebody. I pray that prayer in the strong name of Jesus.